Take a network break, grab a virtual donut and join us for our week's dash through the IT news. We've got stories from Aruba, Cisco, Okta, and more. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job. Visit itpro.tv slash network break for 30% off all plans. And use the promo code network break at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash network break. itpro.tv slash network break. Use the promo code network break to get 30% off all plans. Uh, stick around after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation. We're talking with Palo Alto Networks about new SD-WAN integrations with Azure to streamline cloud access from your branch locations. And by the way, the Packet Pushers are on YouTube. We've got educational and professional development videos, including a course on cloud networking basics, a data center fabrics course with Russ White, a series on EVPN with Ethan Banks and Tony Bork, and more. So just search Packet Pushers on YouTube to find our channel, and we'll see you there. Yeah, that's uh, that's worth watching. That was originally content that we commissioned from, you know, good people to write training courses that was going to be published on our Ignition membership site. Uh, right. And since we've shuttered that, uh, we've now decided to publish it and make it free for everybody. So it's not mm -hmm. like, you know, a bunch of 10-minute videos that are just like, uh, you know, light, fluffy weight. This is the heavy-duty stuff we had from Ignition, and we're just putting it out there for everybody to watch. And I've had some pretty good feedback on it so far. So might be worth checking out our YouTube channel for that. Yes, please do. All right, let's dive into the news. Starting off, Aruba Networks, they've announced a new way for resellers to buy software and equipment with HPE GreenLake for Aruba. Uh, the gist is that resellers can choose from eight predefined service packs in areas like indoor, outdoor wireless, wired access, and SD branch. Uh, the service packs are for on-prem use, but the customer pays via a monthly subscription uh, based on consumption. And the service packs are modular, kind of like Lego blocks to make the whole buying process simple. Yeah, so this follows the long-term trend we talked about, subscription licensing, shareholders want it, and apparently there's enough customers to want it, and so the vendors are squeezed between what shareholders want and what customers want. So we're seeing a lot of the this subscription model recurring licensing type stuff. But in this particular case, Aruba's actually not only just changing to a subscription licensing, they're actually putting much more of their services in the cloud. Now, I've all sort of always flagged this before that Aruba hasn't quite followed the market here. They've tried to hold themselves at arm's length from HP. I think we talked about that a lot, Drew. Yep. And, you know, it's still called HP Aruba and enterprise, you know, HP enterprise company and so forth. So, but this feels like much more like conforming into a unified vision. I think HP has to, I think that HP has to present a unified front to the market that customers are increasingly aligning with brand, this brand, that they're not a slim billing breast of breed solutions going forward. And I think increasingly the cloud actually prevents it. So the more stuff that moves off-prem or to SaaS, it doesn't make sense to have a best of breed, this storage, this networking, this servers, this whatever, right? And so this seems to follow that general trend that we talk about. Yeah, so yeah, HPE itself, you know, the parent company is all in on that GreenLake, you know, subscription and consumption model. And now that they're bringing Aruba into the fold, I do agree it's uh, HP sort of getting its organizational arms around Aruba a little bit more, whereas yeah. Aruba did kind of hold itself apart. Like we are HPE, but we're still our own company. And now by moving them into GreenLake, they are becoming more part of that uh, HPE mothership. Yeah. So that implies that they are moving their applications onto the shared infrastructure that HP is using for GreenLake. So GreenLake is both a subscription service for hardware that ships on the edge so HP calls edge computing, which is your data center, wherever it might be, to the cloud, which is off-prem. And HP is promoting a vision that edge and cloud are all one thing. And mm -hmm. so what we're seeing is the Aruba applications are now being moved onto the GreenLake infrastructure. Whether they're being rewritten, I wasn't able to really determine. But I think this makes sense from a few points of view. 
Um, there are customers who want to consume it that way, but um, and there are resellers who want to sell it that way. I think the reseller angle here is most interesting, Drew. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the main point here is that Aruba is trying to tell resellers, we're going to give you essentially like Lego building blocks or a rental car model where you tell a customer, you can have any color you want as long as it's black. We're going to deliver you more of an outcome than you know products. It's about you need wireless uh, in a school. Okay, you you buy you know one and a half of these service packs. We bring it to you, set it up, get it running, and off we go. Yeah, and and it's increasingly. I, I do feel that the vendors are increasingly looking for ways to move around the resellers. So once you've got a SaaS service in the cloud, what's the value of a reseller? But at the same time, they need the resellers because they're the people of, you know, the last 20, 30 years, they've seen the resellers own the relationship. So how do you get around the resellers without upsetting them? Well, the answer is you put your service in the cloud, the reseller then selects what's in the cloud and then sells it to the, to the, to the customer. Who's the customer dealing with now, the reseller or with the vendor? Must be an interesting conundrum. A little bit of both, yeah, because the reseller can, you know, operate the solution for the customer. The reseller is the customer's touch point. And Aruba, when we when I talked to them, said, "Yeah, we we want to work with resellers. Ninety percent of our business for certain verticals come from resellers, so we're all in with resellers." It is uh, trying to streamline the whole process uh, hmm. for the reseller space. I think it cuts two ways here. I think the interesting part for resellers is it's much simpler for them to sell stuff. It's just in the cloud. There's nothing to ship. You know, a lot of this software doesn't need spare parts. You just sell it and then go off and integrate it. And it's sort of a return to what reselling was 20 years ago, that sort of, you know, drop ship something and then leave the customer with it and move on to the next customer. I wonder if that's how it turns out or whether, you know, this leads to an ongoing professional services engagement, which is, and obviously, and, you know, running professional services profitably is incredibly difficult business. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why they're trying to streamline the whole, you know, um, procurement uh, cycle in that. And there's still equipment here. Obviously, there's going to be wireless APs, switches, um, SD-WAN gateways and stuff that the reseller is going to have to come in and set up and operate and manage. And yes, they can probably do it through Aruba Central on behalf of the customer so they get that service engagement. But there is still that you're going to need people on site mm. somewhere deploying equipment. I think the other thing that's interesting to me is that I, I feel like Aruba is taking a page from Juniper Appstra in that while Appstra is in temp-based networking, if you want to use Appstra, you've got to build your data center rack the way we specify it. You can yeah. do this kind of design. We're forcing you into it, minimizing customization. That's what uh, Aruba is doing here with these service packs. It's not about you get to tweak all the nerd knobs and customize and take a bit of this and that. It's like you buy the car and we ship it to you and that's it. And you yeah. don't get to you don't decide get to the color the and the wheels and, the, and you know, exactly. gear stick and yeah. the leather cover and the, what engine and how many, you know, you, you don't have six different gearboxes in a car. You just get what you get. You know, right. I, so you minimize customization and snowflake design to make it just, we're just going to bang, roll it out and, and you take what we give you. Yeah. And I, I think increasingly that's the way forward. If you're going to be in, for most enterprise IT shops, they don't need customization. Yeah. There's right. only a few specialist organizations who you know, have, and even for the bulk of IT, I think most of it can just be generic. You might have some specialist use cases where you need high-speed storage for a database server or whatever, right? Or some right. custom application which needs to work in a certain way, you know, using something like SAP HANA to do in-memory databases or something, right. and you need a custom server right. for that. But even so, those servers are often commoditized because SAP will only run its software on a certain limited number of, you know, approved and blessed servers that it, that it allows. So... I think the days of the highly variegated, customized, every customer is unique. That's rapidly fading. We don't see that in the pitch anymore. Right. It's fading quickly. It's fading yeah. really because quickly. Yeah. 
it's really just hard to operate and folks just want to operate an IT system and get results and outcomes and not, well, I get to customize it to my heart's content. Hmm. Yeah, very much so. I think this was following that trend. Now, whether that's customer driven or vendor driven, I really can't say. I can't, I haven't come up with any conviction on where I sit with that. I think it's both. I think the industry as a whole is very tired of customization of the fact that every customer, you know, that whole customer, every customer is unique and needs a custom solution. And I think we can't, as, a, as an industry, we can't bear the costs of that. The yes. idea that everything that is unique involves a massive amount of cost. You have to produce a lot of different products with a wide range of choices at a wide range of price points, and then you have to be able to make sure that they're all integrated. And increasingly, we've seen this, this solution is certified to use with VMware, or this solution is certified to work with you know, Microsoft Windows or whatever, and if you buy outside of that, you can't have it. So you don't even, you know, for the last five years, you, you didn't actually get a lot of choice. You were restricted into what you could buy. And I think that started the trend. And I think people have picked out the fact that it actually, it doesn't matter. This idea that you know which hard drive to buy or which DMM, you know, memory modules to buy or whether this CPU is better than that CPU. I think that's all fading away fairly quickly. And particularly, I think that the markets they're going after, like, you know, uh, retail outlets, K through 12, you know, schools, they, they don't have a lot of IT staff on hand anyway to manage a complex, mm. customized deployment. They want essentially a cookie cutter, just make sure folks can get on the Wi-Fi kind of solution. And that's what I think Aruba yeah. is trying to deliver here. More medium, large, you know, brass, gold, right. silver. Exactly. <laughs> you know, silver, yes. gold, platinum, right. whatever it is. I want this right. level of, you know... Licensing. Do you want the subcompact? Do you want the sedan? Do you want the SUV? Yeah, and, that, and yeah. that's those are your only choices. That's right, and you know they all come with four wheels and a steering wheel and a hole in the side right. that you put petrol in, and you know, do you right. really care? And they'll get you to your hotel. That's yes, it. and that's yeah. all you need. <laughs> I think that's where we're headed generally. I think, and, and this is, I think, Green Lake's ahead, step in that direction. It's interesting that HP is leading this, though. I don't see this idea of you know the SaaS HPE as a SaaS infrastructure provider. You know what's it's interesting to consider how VMware and Cisco and IBM, you know, uh, and Dell are in this space. We don't see them talking about these types of offerings. I know they have them at various levels, like they've got apps hosted in the cloud, but HP is the only one with this really comprehensive commitment to it. And they're really like throwing themselves into it. Hmm. But they're smaller than everybody else too. So, <laughs> I guess that helps. Yeah. <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you want to find out more, we'll move on. Uh, in March of 2021, a cloud data center operated by OVH in Strasbourg, France, suffered a massive fire. Uh, now the official report from the fire service details some really significant problems, including the fact that there was no automatic fire extinguishing system in the data center, no general electric cutoff switch, and that delayed firefighters' ability to deal with the fire. And there were other issues like one of the power rooms had a wooden ceiling, uh, and the data center's design may have created fire chimneys that actually helped facilitate the fire spread. A litany of failure, really. This Apparently, this data center facility, if I remember back when it went up in flames, March 2021, someone was actually saying, I did a bit of research into the background of OVH, and this mm-hmm. data center was originally somebody's corporate data center that they bought as an outsourcing contract, and mm-hmm. then that outsourcing contract would then turned into a hosting provider, and that hosting provider was subsequently folded into another company, which then became part of OVH Cloud, some long, long journey. So this was mm-hmm. never a cloud-ready data center, and a lot of people commented on it you know, last year when this went up in flames. But this uh, report from Data Center Dynamics confirms this, that you know, the local firefighters have basically said, this was a fire waiting to happen, and if it caught on fire, there's no cl- electrical cutoff switch, so they couldn't even get inside to douse the fire, so no wonder the whole thing burned <laughs> right. down. And yes. it's, it's hard. I think we said at the time that 
a lot of people are sort of pointing fingers at OVH Cloud saying, you know, you really failed to deliver, a, you know, a quality service here. And, you know, and it was all really good that the CEO was out there on social media admitting that it was his fault and whatever. And now it's mm -hmm. becoming clearer that they really didn't have any other choice. <laughs> 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 they knew the data center yes. wasn't quite up to speed, you know, wasn't wasn't ready for the big time, but that didn't stop them from selling it and making money out of it. So, yeah, uh, the fact that it didn't have automatic uh, fire extinguishing system in place seems madness, particularly in today's day and age. But if it was sort of a, a corporate data center that probably has different standards and then sort of went through various hands and various uh, permutations, I could see why they you know sort of walked into something that wasn't really up to snuff to be a, a hosting facility. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, 20 years ago, we were building data centers to a completely different standard and specification. Right. And, you know, yes. there are data centers in London that have been in use for a very long period of time, and this just does look like OVH <laughs> just didn't, you know, didn't have the time or didn't have the money. Who knows what, what the reasons were, but I would imagine if there's some law firms <laughs> uh, involved, and I note the Data Center Dynamics article does call out a law firm working on a class action. Uh, yes. So, it, it seems quite amusing, but the fire report is actually linked in the data center. It's good reporting from them. That's right. Uh, and for its part, OVH says it's still waiting for an official report from data center experts uh, and its insurance company before they say anything publicly about the results of this fire report. Yeah. So now they're gone to ground. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which might be might <laughs> yes. tell you something. Yeah. I think it does. Yeah. Uh, speaking of bad things happening to folks, identity management provider Okta suffered a security incident earlier this year, and now the company is investigating and trying to contain the damage. According to posts by Okta's chief security officer, a contractor's account was compromised, and Okta estimates that 2.5% of customers, quote, have potentially been impacted and whose data may have been viewed or acted upon, end quote. And 2.5% doesn't sound too bad, but TechCrunch says that 2.5% is actually like something like 366 companies, which sounds a little worse. Yeah, much worse, much worse. So Okta as an identity provider is used as a SaaS identity provider is linked right the way mm. across to a lot of different people. And um, a lot of companies have been using them as an identity provider. And in this case, Okta actually outsourced their tech support to a company in Costa Rica. And the tech support person, somebody in, in the outsourcer was the attack vector. Now... Some very interesting questions here. There are known to be advertisements from the Lapsus hacking group, literally paying people to get access to systems like Okta. So mm. the question here is, did they hack something? So one way that they're apparently they're well known for hacking is to go out and just send authentication messages until somebody just clicks on a button and says yes. So if it's two o'clock in the morning and your phone keeps beeping saying, please confirm your login, people might accidentally press it. Right, Or if right. it keeps mm -hmm. asking you, you might just end up saying yes, because what the hell, you're on a minimum wage, what do you care? Right? right. And then all of a sudden they've got access. So the question now becomes, you know, they outsource tech support to Costa Rica. The insider threat, which that then became, was something that they weren't equipped to handle. It was there for two months before it was detected, as far as we can tell. And they've done a very poor job of the uh, incident response. Did you, did you follow this as it, as it sort of evolved over the week? I just noticed that Okta was uh, sort of getting its time in the barrel. I didn't follow it closely, but I have since read a couple of Okta blogs and some stuff on the internet. And it sounds like, you know, typically instead of being transparent and upfront about it, Okta was like, it's fine. There's no problem here. It's okay. It was just a limited number of things. And then as the story unspooled, look up bigger and bigger. That's right. Uh, so, you know, Okta first announced and said, look, it wasn't a hack. And then they said, well, look, we didn't get hacked. 
And then they say a third party got hacked, but only a few right. customers were impacted. And now it's 370 customers <laughs> were impacted. Right. And, uh, and then particularly, I think the thing that really threw fuel onto the, onto the fire here was that they issued a fairly weasel word sort of announcement saying, yeah, we got hacked, but that's it. And then there was like 750 words of, of nothingness, like nothing mm -hmm. burger. And it really was quite disturbing. I followed a thread from Alex Stamos. Alex Stamos is the ex-chief uh, security officer for Facebook. Uh, he's well known in the security industry. And he said, like, when these events happen, quite often what happens is these critical responses involve the board getting together to decide what to say. And mm -hmm. in the board meeting, there'll be a bunch of lawyers. And some of those lawyers will be what they call CEO insurance. Have you heard about CEO insurance? <laughs> no, but I'm not surprised there's CEO insurance. Yeah. So apparently, if you're a chief executive officer of a company, you can get insurance. So if you make a mistake, the company is insured against you fluffing up, right? Uh-huh. Or the C as a person, like the CEO personally is insured. L limiting any liability that falls on you, I presume. Yeah, that's, that's right. So Because yeah. now what actually happens is the SEC makes the CEO personally liable for a bunch of things. So instead mm -hmm. of actually taking the liability, they now buy insurance against that liability, <laughs> which doesn't feel right, but okay. You know, uh, regulation always has consequences and, mm -hmm. you know, you might've hoped that this would drive behavior in a particular direction, but perhaps not. And, uh, Alec, he was sort of saying that he's been in meetings as an, as a industry expert or a leading figure or an advisor, give suggestions and around the table, there'll be five to eight teams of lawyers, you know, spending $200 a minute in legal fees. <laughs> between the associated teams. And every time somebody says something, they all make a note. And uh, so his point was that sometimes what happens here is that these sorts of things, if you're an in immature CEO or an inexperienced type of person, which is very popular in Silicon Valley, you don't want people who are ex experienced because they're expensive and they know yeah, how want, things work. You want so people you, who know how to break things yeah. and are youthful and, and they, yeah, innovative. Yeah, yeah, they want energy, not experience. Um, <laughs> and so it looks like the CEO got railroaded by the whole lawyer thing and perhaps if at the kindest possible interpretation is he put out a post which sort of the lawyers approved of and now it appears that that thing. Now, what I also note, Drew, is that the share price is doing just fine. So mm -hmm. <laughs> all this kerfuffle uh, that we're talking about, the share price is down, you know, a bit, but not much. So, you know, let's say in the last month, the share price is down 15%, which basically follows the whole industry trend. So, yeah, all the kerfuffle that we just talked about, Still doesn't matter. Shareholders don't care. It's so strange too, because yeah. as an identity provider, Octra is literally the keys to your kingdom. Um, so these security incidents must be treated with the utmost care and sensitivity. And you know, there is always this tension when a, a company gets hacked about transparency versus protecting its own interests. Uh, and it seems like at this point, Octa initially went for protecting its own interests as opposed to transparency. Hmm. Hmm. Somebody did some sleuthing on Twitter and noticed that Cisco uses the same outsource provider. <laughs> so now the question is, how many of these people working for these companies in Costa Rica or the Philippines have been compromised? Because the thing is that a lot of these people earn very small salaries. That's why right. the tech support is outsourced to these locations. Right. And right. if you figure that I'm a, you know, a, a, a hacking crew and I want to broker in, if I give somebody, you know, $10,000, that's a, that's a life-changing sum of money for some of these people, right? Uh -huh. So uh -huh. you've got to wonder if these outsourcing operations are as good as everybody thinks they are. And I wonder if, you know, just because the outsourcers in Costa Rica, maybe they were just doing tech support for South America, you know, or, or various locations and not right. necessarily for me, but they become insiders. They become an insider threat, but they're outside your walls. 
And I think that's the lesson to take away from here is when you outsource, you have to give them access to your systems. They become insiders. Yep. And if, yep. an, if an identity provider, an identity provider, right? The whole point of an identity provider is to be secure, to manage yes. exactly this. Can't yes. do that. We've got a problem. Right. If they can't, if they have trouble with the access of their third-party uh, outsourcers, mm. that's a red flag for you as a customer. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, and frankly, the fact that a lot of these organizations are using third-party outsourcing maybe should be a red flag for you as well. I don't know that there's any way around that, but it should be something that you could raise when you're going into buying cycles with these organizations. Mm -hmm. Very difficult to make, you know, make rational discussions here. Like the, the, the Octa share price has not been impacted by this at all. So if I was the CEO of a company, I would not care less about this security breach. Yeah, which is crazy. Again, crazy for an identity provider, but that... It seems like it. we've had this conversation multiple times that often security doesn't matter. I think the one uh, the one case that that doesn't seem to be is when um, it's uh, when your data gets encrypted uh, for ransomware. But other than that, it seems like yeah, whatever. We got breached. It's fine. Move on. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll we'll spend a couple of weeks of bad press and then forget about it. Yeah, that's right. Well, on that note, we'll take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, IT Pro TV. You can start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV, and there's a special offer for Network Break listeners. You can sign up and save 30% off all plans. Did you know there are more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles? You can become a CyberSec Pro with online training, and it's never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder. And IT Pro TV has you covered from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. There's more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training, engaging hosts prevent information in a talk show format. They're live every day and shows go studio to web in just 24 hours. Courses are listed by category, certification, and job roles so you can find what you need. You can stream IT Pro TV's courses live and on-demand anywhere via Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak to get 30% off all plans. Use the promo code NETWORKBREAK at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak with the promo code NETWORKBREAK at checkout. Use the promo code NETWORKBREAK, itpro.tv slash networkbreak, and save 30% off all plans. All right, back to the news. Cisco's announced new capabilities across its Insight, UCS, and Hyperflex lines. Uh, Intersight, that's Cisco's cloud-based infrastructure management platform for UCS servers and Hyperflex converged infrastructure. And the latest feature lets customers observe and manage their on-prem Kubernetes clusters with their Kubernetes clusters hosted in AWS, Azure, and GCP. Yeah, small features here, Drew. I don't think there's a whole lot to talk about here. They're basically announcing uh, three things. The Intersight platform extends the integrations with EC2. Uh, the mm -hmm. Kubernetes services now it's allow now allows it to import attached clusters. So uh, if you've got an existing Kubernetes instance somewhere outside of your Cisco thing, out of your Cisco Intersight estate, you can now import it and then start to control it. So I see those things as sort of a maturation or logical progression of the Intersight platform. Uh, the yep. Hyperflex features basically announcing that they've got new AMD CPU servers, which is fine. AMD has had some pretty stonking CPUs lately. We don't really talk about CPUs here, but I do track them generally in case it impacts us in networking. Uh, the, the AMD CPUs seem to have gotten a bit of an edge over Intel in terms of performance and sometimes in cost. And so Cisco is following the trend there to say, we've got AMD servers if that's what you want. Uh, but mm -hmm. I also note that they repackage some of their hyperconverged solutions for a lower market point for a smaller packet size. Obviously, I think they're trying to see if they can find more customers if they reach down to the smaller part of the market. 
Um, maybe going head to head with Dell a little. I think Dell's got this hyperconverged market and uh, pretty well tied up. So maybe maybe they're feeling the pinch there. You're talking about Hyperflex mm. Express. Uh, it's simplified hardware and software, and sort of like our Aruba discussion earlier, it's limited options based on the most common customer configuration. So essentially, they're saying you don't get a lot of nerd knobs, you don't get a lot of customization. You just buy the box and you use it, and we make it as easy as possible to buy and use. That's pretty much it, you know. So not a whole lot of stuff. And then they talked a little bit about some new servers with GPUs uh, for people who want to have GPU clusters. Although um, we didn't, know, I haven't talked about NVIDIA this week. I'm going to carry over the NVIDIA announcements to next week because uh, there was a lot going on there, and I still haven't quite been able to decode out the the parts that might be relevant to the network break audience. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, if you wanted to buy a GPU or an AI cluster. I would have to say that NVIDIA's got a strategy there that you'd probably be better off instead of going with your branded solution from, you know, Dell, HP, Cisco, you might be better off looking at NVIDIA because they've got a range of um, prepackaged hardware solutions that are already for AIML where you might use uh, GPU-based solutions. Right, yes. And their their, uh, UCS now can... um tie into GPUs from NVIDIA, which I think makes sense for Cisco wanting to get yeah. there. NVIDIA will certainly make their CPUs available to OEMs to integrate like Cisco, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you can also buy these solutions. And some of these uh, solutions from NVIDIA are bonkers. Uh, you know, they don't just have GPUs, they have them clustered together into, you know, teraflops. The, this, the, the announcements this week are pretty, pretty mind-boggling, and I just wasn't able to break them down into something meaningful this week. So I'll have another go next week. Yeah, so we'll have the links in the show notes if you want to find out more about Cisco and their infrastructure side of the business and the, the new uh, capabilities there. But we'll move on. This is our last story of the day. Uh, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger has asked the U.S. Senate to approve $52 billion in subsidies to support chip manufacturing in the U.S. Gelsinger appeared before the senators along with executives from Micron and LAM Research. Um, just a reminder, Intel's building new plants in the U.S. states of Ohio, Arizona, and New Mexico and would like a little financial help. <laughs> Of course he does, you know, and we do have a we are often a bit snarky about the willingness of tech companies and tech startups to take government money and then claim their innovation and then complain about not paying and complain about how much taxation they have to live with, which is always, <laughs> you know, vaguely hypocritical, but it's the way of these things. But I must say here that Intel's got a case because what struck me this week, Drew, is just how much money has been poured into Intel's competitors. So if you look at the manufacturers in Japan, Korea, China, and especially Taiwan, they have been hugely supported by government funding, often right. huge loans to get these companies off the ground, huge uh, tax breaks about employees, you know, avoiding various things and stuff like that. And in fact, those businesses were all built, you know, those fabs and those organizations were all built basically with the support of government, act, you know, giving them land, tax breaks, funding, cheap loans, right. whatever it is, right? Um, right. So in that sense, it's it's not unreasonable for them to ask for handouts, especially if their competitors are in for it. And it's not unreasonable in, as we see the geopolitical rebalancing going on, you know, the fallout from the Ukraine-Russia war. We're going to see a lot of governments saying, we need to have some of this, some more of this in our political blocks. And so I think, yep. you know, so if Intel wants to come up to speed, he'd be crazy not to ask for it and probably get some. Yes, you're right. I mean, I, I, Intel's like a $70 billion company, so I have uh, you know, complaints about them coming to the government for handouts. But yes, you're right that a lot of the, the their competitors did get uh, investment um, from their governments uh, back in the day, mm-hmm. although I will note that it was Intel that decided to ship manufacturing overseas and take advantage of that. So you know, now it's coming back to roost on them and 
asking for money just sticks in my craw a little bit. Although I think the main point is that, yes, there are now significant geopolitical concerns, particularly with Taiwan and China. If China decides to invade Taiwan, take over Taiwan, what does that mean for our access to essential semiconductor manufacturing capabilities? And so uh, Pat Gelsinger was pressing that button in his appeal to Congress. Yeah, of course he would. Why not? You know, shareholders, yeah. if you're an Intel shareholder, free money is free money any way you look at it, right? Yep, absolutely. And that's good for you. But it also does recognize the fact that if you're going to build a silicon fab, you need a lot of physical space to set up these factories yep. and to do the distribution and all that sort of stuff. And buying that land to put factories on is often challenging. You do need government support for a lot of those operations. Um, and I do think that the the political, you know, as we always say here, we you know, a lot of what we do in technology now is driven by politics. So in Ukraine, what we're seeing is the internet is being used by a, as a communications tool between the military units there. And they're working very hard to keep the public internet up and running, not only so that they can talk to the population, but also so the military can coordinate. In effect, mm -hmm. the internet has been militarized. And Russia, part of the Russian army's uh, problems is communications because they can't use the Ukraine internet to a large extent or to a lesser extent. And so there's some very interesting th lessons to be learned there. If the internet is becoming a military target and the apparently the cyber war is actually playing out in Ukraine right now, we're just not hearing about it because it's happening inside the theater of where the war is occurring, um, there's some very interesting implication about what happens uh, to the internet globally, I think. Yeah, and again, it also ties back into that threat of, you know, uh, we're seeing with Russia and sanctions being imposed on them, you know, if something happened with China and Taiwan and we felt like we had to go down the sanctions route and suddenly stopped importing semiconductors, what would that do to our own uh, businesses here in the U.S.? So I, I, I do think in that regard, Gelsinger has an argument whether he needs free government money for that is another question. There are certainly many creative ways that a big company like Intel could tap into the gobs and gobs of money slashing around in the private market um, if he was being creative. But yeah, it's probably easier to just ask the government for the handout. Well, and it's also speed. You need the government right. to give you space and you need approvals and building approvals and, you know. Well, a lot of that is a local and state and not the federal, but this is a federal appeal. Yeah, so, But sure. yeah, I take your point. Yep. Yeah. Um, if you want to read uh, his, uh, Pat Gelsinger's official um, uh, statement to Congress. We have a link to that in the show notes. Plus, the Register did a good overview. That's uh, also in the show notes. Uh, that does wrap up our news portion of today's show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Palo Alto Networks. We're talking about SD-WAN integrations with Azure. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're sponsored by Palo Alto Networks, and Palo Alto is expanding its cloud partnership by integrating with Azure to help customers achieve a multi-cloud strategy. We're going to dive into how this works with our guest, Sutapa Bansal. She is Director of Product Management for Artificial Intelligence, ML, and CloudBlades at Palo Alto Networks. Sutapa, welcome to the podcast. And, you know, let's, let's start off with an easy question. Why SD-WAN to Azure in the first place? Why do I need SD-WAN as opposed to just setting up a VPN? Yeah, there has been, you know, acceleration and adoption of SaaS apps. Everybody knows that. But now even many enterprise apps are being hosted in public clouds, including Azure. So that's why we see that there is a need for connecting branches to Azure cloud. And traditionally, these the traffic from branch location destined for these enterprise apps gets backhauled to a central data center. Uh -huh which of course degrades application performance as well as puts unnecessary pressure on the network. That's where SD-WAN comes in because what we do with SD-WAN is, right, we utilize different types of WAN connections, including MPLS, uh, internet, and 
wireless LTE. And then we analyze all these available paths and choose the best path for the applications. Right. So people out there could just connect to Azure via a web browser, but only if your app's in a web browser. But you're still only going to get a, a version of experience that, you know, or the user experience of that is going to be, well, we don't know. You can't monitor it very easily, right? So putting SD-WAN in here gives you the ability to visualize traffic, to fail over from connections, to use different bandwidth types in the same way. It's more of an experience thing. Yeah, I think it is both experience, application performance, and visibility as you touched upon it, right? Yeah. So basically the idea admins, they can define different policies even for different applications. Right. So if I'm at home, I could have two or three you know, bandwidths of you know, 3G, 4G, 5G, a, a broadband connection, maybe even a cable connection, and that user can always be connected, especially if it's a, a self-important executive who thinks that they actually do important things. They are always connected to the internet while using SD-WAN. And so the Azure, then this, this makes sure that they're reliably connected to Azure where the accounting app is or their, uh, their commission payments are. We have seen many, many of our customers, right? They want to ensure that their high cost wireless LTE is reserved for such instances. That's ah, so a traffic steering. Yeah. Okay. So presumably, you know, I could get to Azure because it's available on the internet. So what is, what is Palo Alto Networks doing differently about you know, what's new about me being able to get to Azure? Yeah. So we are launching the Prisma SD-WAN Azure CloudBlade, which automatically provisions the virtual ions in Azure and seamlessly provides the connectivity from branch to Azure Virtual VAN, right? So it is based on our open API framework, which provides a simplified mechanism to connect to Azure Hub, which is, you know, what needs to be deployed in a particular Azure region. And it simplifies this deployment using a UI-based management approach. Okay, so a CloudBlade, essentially, as I understand it, it's kind of like an application that I can run within the Palo Alto Networks SD-WAN that will set up this connection into Azure for me, including launching that virtual instance of the Palo Alto SD-WAN. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely, right? And the beauty of that is that instead of like the traditional methods which require per-branch configuration, we uh, make it available using UI-based configuration where you just configure a few steps such as, you know, deploying as your resources, adding your as your signing information, BGP, CITR, and other research information. But customers don't have to deal with, you know, complex VPN setup or routing protocol management that's all taken care of using this integrated approach. Yeah. And a CloudBlade is, is I like to think of it as an app that exists in the cloud. And it's the thing that does this. So if you're a, a Palo Alto SD-WAN customer, you can just choose to enable these apps. You call them cloud blades. That, that's, that's kind of like, is that viable enough as a way to think about this? Yeah, that's exactly, I think uh, you've got it, right? That's exactly the way to think about it because with, with CloudBlade, it's essentially you enable that CloudBlade, which is like enabling that application on mm -hmm. the SD-WAN controller and you configure it and voila, you have this connectivity. And I can do all that through a centralized controller, meaning I don't have to go to each individual branch device and start configuring all my policies and, and setting up the connectivity and doing the routing. Yeah, exactly. So what does this mean then for the enterprise? I mean, I guess I sort of said one of those things is it sounds like it's a lot easier to actually set up these connections. Yeah, so this offers many benefits to the enterprises, right? Starting with, if you think about, we talked about the simple, simplified connectivity where they only need to set up uh, the resources and configure a few things on the CloudBlade UI. 
But also, it also extends the benefits of SD-WAN to cloud, right? Where now you get visibility insights into the application performance and the traffic steering from first mile, which is the branch, to the last mile, which is the applications hosted in the cloud. And then we also have SD-WAN has our integrated AI ops capabilities, which now provides customers deep visibility into how applications are performing. And with this integration, it means including visibility of the applications which are hosted on Azure Cloud. So this is the, so this clutches back to what we raised in the early part. The reason you want an SD-WAN is to get visibility. You want to be able to do traffic engineering, like send cloud, send your traffic over over the 5G if it's a line of business, like credit card transactions or something like that, small bandwidth, but important, but you want to send internet bandwidth over a, a broadband connection, for example. But what you also need is visibility to know what's actually happening. And I think the days of us just sort of plugging in the WAN to some pseudo guaranteed thing from a MPLS provider and crossing your fingers that they actually gave you the bandwidth that they promised isn't, isn't the way forward anymore. Yeah, that is really important to customers. And yeah. another thing that we had heard from customers is many a times, you know, whenever they need to add such connectivity, it would lead to a downtime. But with CloudBlade, we have ensured that there is no service disruption, right? There's, there's no need for you to upgrade your SD-WAN controller or any branch appliance. How about redundancy if I wanted to set up multiple VIONs, which is the um, uh, cloud instance of the Palo Alto SD-WAN? Can I, can I do that as well through the CloudBlade? Yeah, absolutely right. So it is a highly available architecture. What that means is you can deploy two virtual ions in different availability zones in the cloud. And what that will ensure is that you have a seamless failover in case of there is an issue in even one of the EZs. All right. So this is a virtual appliance hosted in on the Azure infrastructure, and it is actually maintaining the state between them. So you can put them in two different availability zones so that you know if Azure goes up in smoke in one place or has a has a fit. And and it goes down. There's a, a failover, a hot failover, ready to go. Yeah, that's interesting because it's sort of like you know doubling my uh, reliability in that I'm already with the SD WAN getting multiple uh, link connections, and now yeah. I'm also getting uh, double the availability with the actual VIONs. How does this compare with Azure Virtual WAN? So a lot of people are out there starting to say, well, if Azure's got its Virtual WAN, I put that in. That must be the supported way. Is can I move from virtual land to this? Is this a replacement or an upgrade? What's the relationship between those two? Do you think? No. So as your virtual van, I think the key thing they are providing as part of that architecture is that you deploy one virtual van, and then they have this concept of Azure Hub, right? Mm. So which is actually deployed in each region of Azure. And that is used to provide, let's say, connectivity between various different VNets of Azure. Or uh, also if you have various regions, then that provides the connectivity between those regions of Azure. But they are definitely working very closely with, you know, SD-WAN vendors like us, where they ensure that applications are getting the right connectivity from branch locations from, you know, remote for remote workers to get to Azure. So you're saying uh, VWAN and Virtual Hub, that's Azure's way of helping me as an Azure consumer connect all of my VNets together without having to go in and individually plumb them up together? It's supposed to streamline that part of the application? Yeah. Okay. And then you're tying into the virtual hubs from the branch end. Yes. So with that, the users, they get connectivity from branch into various uh, applications located in different Azure regions, if you will. 
Okay. And then I think the other thing here then is that as Azure and AWS and GCP also roll out new networking capabilities, which they keep doing, I presume CloudBlades will keep up with that so that I don't have to worry about, you know, the back end of, again, Azure, AWS and GCP. Yeah, recently, for example, we released the AWS version 2.0 of our CloudBlade based on the update that uh, AWS did. So which makes it easy for our customers to be on the latest and greatest. Right. Because I know like AWS has rolled out transit gateways and other things and now Azure with uh, virtual hubs and VWAN. So they, these cloud providers keep iterating and it sounds like you're keeping up with them for the customer. Yeah, absolutely. Like Azure today has around 60 regions and we are sure that, you know, that will keep growing. So we'll make mm. those uh, added capabilities available to our customers. So many regions. And if you have to manually create a VWAN for each of these different locations, you're just going to end up with a, a bit of a mess network at the end of the day. And the developers want to keep putting stuff in different regional zones or availability zones. It's hard to keep control of it all. Um, so there, there are a lot of, you know, SD-WAN vendors out there. How would you say that Prisma differentiates when it comes to getting into the cloud to cloud connectivity? Yeah, so with Prisma SD-WAN, I think the key differentiator is our cloud plates, which make this integration with public cloud providers, be it AWS, Azure, GCP or others, as easy as downloading an application on the SD-WAN controller and then setting up your policies. Right. Many SD-WAN vendors support some integration with cloud VVANs and in case of AWS, the AWS Transit Gateway, but they involve a significant amount of manual operations that do not scale. Uh, these cloud blades have been, so when they first came out, it was super interesting to me that this idea of the cloud blades, and it took a while for, uh, you know, to, for them to evolve to the point, but your pace around deploying these cloud blades, these apps, these with lots of new features in them is actually picking up pace. And I think that's actually a key differentiator of you know, the Palo Alto Prisma, because it's not just connect to Azure, it's also connect to Google, connect to AWS, and they're equally proprietary networks. The, you know, you need a different way of approaching it. So I think the CloudBlade thing is easy to underestimate, but it's actually a key feature of the architecture. Yeah, our customers really love it, right? As it eliminates the need for any complex and error-prone operations. And mm. as this is open API-based, so, you know, it is independent of our underlying SD-WAN releases, making it very easy for customers to go and enable any new CloudBlade. Okay, so you're saying if I wanted to use this CloudBlade, I don't have to update my SD-WAN software. It's just going to be available to me? Yes, that, that makes it really easy, right? And I think the other thing that you mentioned is you've also got CloudBlades for Google, for AWS, which means I, as a network operator, don't necessarily need to become an expert in you know, sort of the nuances of setting up an AWS and the nuances of GCP and the nuances of Azure because I can just use the CloudBlades. Yeah, exactly. We normalize these differences for our customers so they don't have to understand the nitty-gritty of each of these different cloud providers. Yeah. You have to still work within the limitations, not to say you take them away because AWS <laughs> is still AWS, right? Yeah. Uh, Google's got its own different way of doing networking, but you actually simplify the WAN configuration part because it's your your edge, you know, whether it's an appliance or the virtual, you know, the, the traffic that's flowing through the cloud just connects in the same way at the end of the day. So it looks the same once it's inside those systems, it's still all different. So. I think the beauty is that, you know, what CloudBlades do is that even if organizations, they create new applications to Azure, they use new Azure regions or other cloud yeah. providers, or even open new branch offices, right? So CloudBlades will ensure that the enterprise van and these different cloud are synchronized. So you don't have to go and reconfigure any of this as you bring, bring on new sites. Right. 
Right. Well, that does wrap up the time we have. Sutapo, thank you for joining us. And, and thanks to Palo Alto for being a sponsor. Uh, if people want to find out more about uh, Palo Alto Networks SD-WAN, where should they go? Thanks much for having us. Please visit our website, paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash SD-WAN. All right, that's paloaltonetworks.com slash sassy slash SD-WAN. You can also find that link in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find this in many more fine, free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.